0: We're in week three of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus today, and that's uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, so we'll be there in chapter 1, verses 11 through 14 today, and so I ask that you uh, find in your Bible, and it makes it easier that you can see these things before you when we, when we talk about them. So if you're looking for it, the Ephesians is in the New Testament. It's going to be right after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right after Acts and Romans, right after both Corinthians and uh, then Galatians, and you'll find it right after that. Uh, So as you're looking at that, you might notice in the ESV or really any modern English translation that uh, what we've had between those verses, verse three and 14 looks like about four sentences. Uh, In the original Greek language though, all of those are just one single sentence, one very long run on sentence, which was very common Uh, for Greek writers because uh, none of those writers ever took an English comp class ever I don't know why, might be a language thing Um, so technically though we've actually spent three weeks on on one sentence Um, but that's not why I tell you that the real reason I tell you that or point this out to you is that um, I want you to better understand that all these things that we've been looking at all these things we've learned about are very closely connected to each other uh, they, they speak to the greatness of who God is. They speak to the depth of his love for his people. Uh, it speaks to his love, you know, love that began long before the world existed. And as we're going to see today, love that carries us forward or this way, whatever way is forward for you, uh, into eternity, into the future. And, and when we're going to acquire full possession of this inheritance that God has promised. Uh, that we receive as as God has adopted us into his family as his children. So uh, we're going to read, starting in verse 11, we're just going to read these four verses uh, of this wonderful passage. So Ephesians 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will and so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, that... We who were once not your children, that we now receive such a wonderful inheritance from you, who chose to be our Heavenly Father and chose to redeem us from our sin, uh, that is a blessing that we cannot easily fathom. But we wish to live to the praise of your glory. And so this morning, my prayer is that you make us to understand the depths and the certainty of salvation and of our eternal belonging in your kingdom and in your home your home, which is now our home. May our hearts and our minds be brought to focus this morning, and may our love of you, our triune God, expand this morning. Amen. So again, despite this being one Greek sentence uh, in our passage today, it's very easy to to divide it up into a couple of sections. Our, Our portion today, you can see in two sentences, and and each section is very clear because one, uh, they both begin with the phrase, in him, and they both end with the phrase, to the praise of his glory. They're like bookends on these two sections. And so this phrase, in him, speaks to our union with Christ. You might remember back in week one, we learned a, a bit about what that means, the blessings that come with our union in Christ. and uh, we're going to learn a bit more about what that means today as we can see, as we'll see more of the blessings that come as a result of our, our union with Jesus. Uh, each section then is, is, is actually speaking to a different group of people. I think sometimes we think back then and forget there was actually a, a great divide of diversity within the church, and um, the first group, uh, verses 11 and 12, are, are addressing the Jews, and that's why you, you might notice there that Paul includes himself in the saying, he says, we, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. And then in verse thirteen and fourteen, Paul is addressing the Gentile believers. and I'll show you why as we get to it in a little bit, uh, why he's made that distinction, but we'll we'll see there that it's a little different group. So uh, for now though, let's uh, I want you to see that he's reminding these Jewish Christians that um, that they have received from God an inheritance, uh, an inheritance. That's That's a possession, a a blessing that someone receives as a result of being in a family that they belong to. Uh, A family they belong to, it's it's often land, it's uh, often property, uh, physical property of some sort. Uh, However, in this case, what we're talking about is the forgiveness of our sin. In this case, what we're talking about is salvation. In this case, it's an eternal home with God the Father. It's a place in the kingdom of God for all of eternity. It's an inheritance that you can't receive from belonging to any other family in the world. And so he goes on again to remind them that it was God's purpose, God's will to predestine him. To give them faith in Jesus long before he created the world. And, uh, and, and this is given to us, not, not just to wonder about, but it's given as a comforting truth. That God works all things according to the the counsel of his will. That's what we see here in this passage. And that's a a comfort because if God can have everything that he wills, absolutely everything, all that he desires, then what will happen outside the will of God? Nothing. 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 See, the sovereignty of God over all of life is why we can believe, why we can find actual encouragement and biblical statements like Romans 8.28, which tells us quite clearly, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so when, when Joseph was sold into slavery by his, his jealous brothers who, who sought to do him harm, and, and, and when it seems that nothing good could possibly come from this, we, we later see that, that after being sold into slavery, he ends up being the second in command in the, in the, uh, under Pharaoh in Egypt. He's able to, to actually preserve a, a bunch of food when a famine is coming. And, and for that reason, God was able to actually save not only uh, that nation, but his, his family as well. You see, God was working in everything that happened. It was all working according to God's purpose. And Joseph actually acknowledges this a few times. Uh, At one point later, when his brothers are there before him in Genesis 45, verse 8, he says, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, the Lord of all his house, the ruler over all the land of Egypt. And then again in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph adds, adds, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, that kind of thing Joseph couldn't have known at the time, right? What's happening? What good can come from this? And yet God was working, even in, in the details of that event, for something larger. And, and, you know, there is a, a reason that you are alive. You might not even think about that often, but there is a reason that you are actually alive. There is a reason that you live in Manhattan. I know many of you that are here temporarily wonder about that, right? Right? Uh, but there is a, a reason that you're married to the person you're married to there's a, a reason that uh, you're going through the trial in your life that you're going through and there's a reason that that the plan that, that you had this week didn't pan out the way you thought it was going to pan out and, and while I can't tell you the specific details of that reason i, I don't have you know i'm not pre- I don't have that knowledge I, I can tell you that um, I can Say with absolute confidence that there is a a wider purpose for your life. That there is a reason for your salvation. And and what we see here in this text is said so clearly, it's for the praise of God's glory. For the praise of God's glory. And we're going to come back to that statement a little bit. uh, Because again, we see it twice in this passage. Now I want to spend the rest of our time in the second portion. um, Just considering it where it begins in verse 13. Uh, Those words that you see in him, you also. Uh, And so the first section, as we said, was talking, uh, speaking to the Jews specifically, who, who were the first to receive the gospel, remember? When they went and they proclaimed the gospel, they went first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Uh, that's what's happening here, what he's speaking about. And so uh, anyone that is not a Jew then is a Gentile, and that's who he's speaking to at this point. And he says, uh, so right from the start, he's stating what is necessary for Gentiles to be included in the family of God, to be made children of God. Because that's a big question for them, right? The Jews are wondering, how much of our Jewish stuff do they need to do? And, and what do we see is the answer here. You know, they, does, what, what does it say here? You know, do they have to wear, what would Jesus do, bracelets? they even make those anymore? Um, You know, they have to memorize a a few Chris Tomlin songs to to prove that they're in the family of God. Is is it that they have to read all of Calvin's Institutes or the Westminster Confession, right? Something a little closer to home now. Uh, No, you know, see, the Apostle Paul is very clear that they were made children of God. They were included in the family of God the same way that the Jews here were. If you look at verse 13, and, and you'll see it here. They were made children of God when they heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. You see, both Jew and Gentile come to Jesus by faith, by hearing and believing the word of truth, which is really just a phrase that means the gospel. It's a a gracious blessing to be able to hear the truth, not the words merely spoken, but but to really hear and understand what the gospel means for you. Because, uh, you know, the gospel not only must be proclaimed, uh, and the gospel not only must be heard, but the gospel must be trusted. It must be believed. It, uh, you know, it is, it is for us, uh, must be trusted for us to be rendered redeemed. Uh, think about it. Absolutely, everyone actually responds to the gospel. Uh, We we use that phrase, did they respond? Well, everyone responds to the gospel. Uh, You know, as a a teenager, I attended this this midweek youth group, and uh, some of my friends invited me to, and uh, it was evangelistic by its very nature. It was called search, as in uh, telling the the students, you know, go search for people that need to hear the gospel and bring them, and that's how I ended up there. And and week after week, uh, I I heard a very explicit gospel presentation. You know, the, the youth pastor then Uh, would explain that we're all sinners, that uh, our sin has earned us the wrath of God, and he'd explain that when you die, that is exactly what you will get, the wrath of God that you have earned, uh, unless you believe and trust in Jesus Christ by faith. Uh, And very explicit, and week after week, as he would proclaim this gospel, uh, I'd hear some version of that, And, and the only thing that would actually go through my mind is when will this guy stop talking so I can go talk to those cute girls again? Week after week. I was, a, I was a very deep teenager. Um, and, and so at the heart, though, what, what you're seeing there is this, this response, and the response was absolute indifference. Um, it, it's not that I didn't respond, I just didn't respond with, with any real care. Um, like we said, everyone responds to the gospel in some way. Some, some people respond to the gospel with, with anger. It makes them angry, you know. It makes them angry that anyone would ever call them a a sinner, maybe. Or it makes them angry that anyone would believe this when it can't be proven uh, in some scientific method. Or it makes them angry because, you know, in their life, they have have had a front row seat to watch some Christian act so hypocritical that now when they hear this gospel, it it just makes them angry. Others respond with a a sort of relativism, right? Um... That's great for you. I'm I'm happy that Jesus makes you happy. That's wonderful. But you know, there's a bunch of other things that will accomplish the exact same result. You know, Islam's good for people too, and and Hinduism and Mormonism. Uh, Whatever it is you you desire, you know, this sort of all roads lead to Rome. There's no real truth kind of response, and so I won't really engage you with this. You see, while everyone who hears the gospel responds to the gospel in one way or another, there is only one saving response to the gospel. And that's to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior for our sins. That's that's the unity that we have as as Christians, right? That's why we can have a a thousand different interests and a thousand different things that really intrigue us and we find important, and yet we come around this one central idea that, that there is no hope outside of Christ. See, the means by which we, we came to hear the gospel is, is absolutely as vast as there are people. Uh, but what was true for every single one of us is that uh, what we see in this passage is that when we heard the word of truth, that when we, we heard the gospel of salvation, that, that when we did that, that we actually believed in Jesus. And that also means that, that God has done something else for us. You, you see that here. You'll, you'll see it in your text, uh, that last phrase in verse 13, he says, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Do you hear that, Christian? This is where Christianity gets weird, right? Um, there is an invisible spirit, who is God, that resides within you. Kind of weird. Um, and I want to, you know, ask you this question. It's the question Paul asked the Christians in uh, 1 Corinthians three sixteen, when he says, "Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit?" dwells in you it's a great question because we tend to function in life as if we don't know that and our text is is telling us today what this means for us you know if you leave out the qualifier there in the middle you'll see it more clearly it says we're sealed with the Holy Spirit we're sealed with the Holy Spirit what this means is that God has placed his mark of ownership on you it's a sign that you actually belong to God and I want to make sure we, we really learn and we really understand what we what we mean by this idea of seal. You know, and in some sense, it's kind of like uh, when a when a, a cattle has been branded. You know, um, it's less painful than that, usually, um, but it's a mark that is now there that this cattle belongs to this specific rancher. You know, but in a in a more <clears throat> literal use of this term, seal, it's uh it's a, that of a stamped impression in wax that is pointing to to ownership. And, and along with ownership, also protection. Uh, in fact, in, in Paul's day, a, a, a merchant, rather, a merchant might have traveled to a city like Ephesus and, and gone through the marketplace and picked out things to purchase, and, and maybe had way too much stuff. And uh, this is before Amazon Prime, and so they would, <clears throat> they'd have it where they'd have to bring it with them, and, uh, and so they'd have all these pur- purchases kind of crated up, and uh, they'd be shipped back. And so what they would do is they'd melt some of this wax on the crate. And actually use a signet kind of ring to, to mark it as as their own, and these crates then would be shipped to Philippi or, or Rome or you know, wherever they lived, and as these crates would arrive, their servants would in that city would see these crates and see the marking of their owner on there, and they would know that these actually belonged to their owner, and that 's how they 'd know what to pick up and i I love this illustration. I find it beautiful and comforting because it's easy to see that you know each of us are going to die at some point and and, and when we arrive on that distant shore um, he'll know you are his when I mean, you hear this brethren says that he will know you are his, his uh, because you have God's signet ring on you as one who belongs to him of one of his possessions that have been purchased at a great price a huge price the price of his own son upon the cross so now I, I expect, if you're anything like me, um, you're most familiar with this idea of, of, a, of a seal in regards to when wax is dripped on a, an envelope and then the, the ring is pushed down and squished and it, it looks so great, you know, it's the kind of thing that you kind of wish you could do with all your letters, um, you know, by a king or an authority of some way. And I, I love it when two things that I've been studying in a week actually come together and that absolutely happened this week. Uh, in our Thursday night small group, we've been studying the book of Esther And in the book of Esther, there is a a king. He's not a good king. He's not a good man. Uh, And and after he's been manipulated uh, by a guy named Haman, he sends out this this edict, uh, a word from the king to the rest of the kingdom. And and in this edict, he's agreed that uh, that there's a certain day when all the Jews will just be killed. Um, And Haman wants to do this to get rid of his enemies. And uh, and, and so that edict was sealed with the, with the king's ring and that wax, and it was sent out, the signet ring. And, and later, once the king becomes aware of this, this foolishness, his own foolishness, you know, and Esther, his queen, asked him to revoke this edict, uh, you know, it seems like a great plan until you read in, uh, in, in Esther 8 8, it says, An edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked cannot be revoked. This is the king wanting to revoke his own edict. And and as a result of the seal, it absolutely cannot, not even the king could revoke his own edict. And and so, you know, once it was was sealed with that, and and just in case you're wondering, because I kind of want to know how things end, they, they do. They find a loophole, a way around this. The king sends out a second edict and, and it gives a, an opportunity for the Jews to defend themselves and, and so there is a way around it in that regard. But, but what I found so remarkable in studying you know, both of these this passages this week is that this seal that God has placed upon you, this Holy Spirit cannot be removed. It cannot be revoked. Um, which means even if you want it revoked, it cannot be revoked. It's a mark that has so often been called indelible. Uh, maybe you're familiar with this, maybe not. Uh, it's not a theological term primarily. It simply means a mark that cannot be removed. It's often a phrase referring to a scar that someone receives um, that is used because it is now a permanent scar. Uh, Perhaps you've heard the phrase, though, indelible grace, uh, meaning, of course, that the grace of God bestowed upon us in the gospel cannot be removed. And what we're seeing in our our passage here today is that the, the mark of the Holy Spirit, this seal, absolutely cannot be removed. It is eternally indelible, and that means that your salvation is eternally secure. That's huge. Um. Okay, so as we look at our last verse today then, it's still speaking in the Holy Spirit and it, it builds on even that, that first idea. It says, um, speaking of the Holy Spirit, it says, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it. A guarantee in this sense is something given to show that the rest will be given later. It's like uh, an engagement ring given, uh, given to a, a woman that a man intends to marry at a later date or... Um, you know, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22, in a, in a similar fashion, lays this out. It says, uh, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his, his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And again, I, I guarantee is like a, a down payment or a first installment. And in human use, it's really about intention. You know, you intend to buy this house, you intend to buy this car, whatever it might be. But with God, it's an absolute certainty because he has the means to fulfill it. And, and as we've seen, he always keeps his word. Um, so if you have the spirit, your salvation is, is absolutely certain. Uh, and I want to point out one more thing here. Uh, before we kind of move on. First of all, uh, every illustration I've come up with in this uh, to give you a picture of what a, a seal is has, has been a thing, right? Uh, cattle branding, shipping crates, king's rings, all, all items. However, I want you to look at verse four, 14 there. Uh, what's the first word? I mean, is, is the word witch, you know, indicating a thing? It's, it's not which is, is it that? I know one of those is proper English. Um, It's not that, the word is is who. The word who indicates not a thing, but a a person. Um, This seal is unlike anything you and I could possibly dream up because it's not a thing. When God seals us, he marks us with the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. That's mind-blowing. It's weird, but it's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful, isn't it? I mean, think about that. You're, you're not God, but, but in Christ, God dwells in you. You know, Christians, take some time today to let that idea kind of sink in, maybe this afternoon. Um, that as you are walking around, that, that the Spirit of God, because of the gospel, dwells in you. Um, God's Spirit, like, mind-blowing. Okay, we have to move on although I want to stay there and just talk about how amazing that it is anyway so so let me just try and guess something at this point. This is where I get to be a predictor right um, If you're like me, some of us are, are struggling at this point uh, with this question right that's all great that if you have the Holy Spirit it's permanent but but how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? How do I know if, if that seals on me because we kind of want to f- find it right like freckles arranged in a certain way, or our eyes all turn green or something. Um, that's not how it works, though, you know. We, we start wondering, you know, and you think of those things you've heard, you know, is it that someone speaks in tongues or, or some charismatic work of that, and that's not what it is. You see, the, the way that you know that you have this Holy Spirit, this seal, this, this mark on you is what we've already seen in our passage, and it, it's simply that you're, in your heart you believe the gospel. It's not as amazing as maybe you want it to sound, right? Like, you would prefer the green eyes, maybe. Uh, the evidence that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, though, is that you have faith in Jesus, because without the Holy Spirit, you simply could not believe. See, the, the gospel tells us that we're sinners and that Jesus died for us, and, and the world simply does not believe that. The gospel says that we are dead in our trespasses, that we are, we are dead in our sins, and, and that Jesus rose again from the dead to redeem us from our sins, and the world simply does not believe that. The gospel says that your life isn't just some some random event, but that God has eternal purpose for you. And, And the world does not believe that. You know, not until we are supernaturally changed can we believe the truths of the gospel that are so dear to our hearts. And that's why our, our faith sometimes makes us look absolutely crazy. I'm, I'm not the only one who finds yourself in that situation sometimes, right? You know, uh, uh, <clears throat> any of you go to the, the Christmas tree lighting at Blue Earth Plaza this, uh, the Friday after Thanksgiving? Uh, okay, we're the only ones there apparently. Oh, you were there. Yes, you were there. Um, and, and, and while we were there you know, there were some volunteers and they kept handing out these 3D glasses like you get at the movies, well the movies in 1950 anyway uh, and, and our kids put them on and at one point uh, Berkeley looked at these lights, they had like this, this fountain and, and they, these lights were coming out of the fountain like mimicking a fountain and, and she looks at this fountain and out of her mouth came the most glorious laughter of pure delight and she's just Santa's and just this wonderful child laughter and I, and I looked where, where she was looking, and all I saw were, were simple lights. Uh, you know, she looked absolutely crazy to me. Like, um, I need to have her uh, evaluated crazy, um, because she's laughing at Santas when all there is is lights. And I, I looked again, and still no Santas, only lights. But, but these glasses that she was wearing, you know, they turned every point of, gl- of light anywhere, turned them into these Santa heads. And so what she saw was this, this fountain of flying Santa heads over and over again, uh, one after another. And, and again, all I saw was a simple strand of Christmas lights. And, uh, you know, so while she seemed absolutely crazy to me, she, she wasn't. She really saw Santa heads, and they were like there. It's not because she was crazy. Uh, you know, with, with her eyes, and, and once I was given those same glasses, once I put on those glasses, I too could see those, those Santa heads, and it was just as delightful as she, her first response to it. You see, this is why you might feel crazy at times being a Christian. Um, you've got friends, you've got roommates, you've got co-workers. Um, those of you that have unbelieving extended family, you feel this uh, a great deal, uh, those who are convinced that uh, see you and, and think you're crazy because you're convinced that Jesus is alive, uh, that he's the Son of God, and, and that you look to Scripture and you acknowledge it as the Word of God, um, you know, that, that the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you know, if you share that kind of information. So, so yeah, you might seem absolutely strange to these people. You know, they, they see you delight in God. And yet, when they look at the world, they see no God. And the reason that you seem crazy but I want you to know, you're not, you're not crazy. You might be, but not because of this. Um, you're not crazy, because you go, God has filled you with His spirit. He's given you faith, and, and like those glasses that Berkeley had on, this, this faith allows you to, to see that uh, someone who, without those glasses, you simply could not see. You know, you think of the, the gift of the Holy Spirit like those glasses allowing you to see. And uh, Jesus even talks about this, not the glasses, but the idea behind it. In uh, and, and John 14, 16, and 17, he, he tells those, those listening to him at the time, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. See, what Jesus was saying will be in the future at this point, uh, it, it now is. So you're not crazy be- because of your faith in Jesus. You're, you're blessed with eyes of faith. You're redeemed. So the only question left here is, is why? Why? You know, why? Well, why have the Jews and the Gentiles, why have you and I been, been made children of God and given an inheritance and, and given faith to believe the gospel and been sealed with this, this Holy Spirit that we're learning about? Why? Well, I'll give you a rhyme for it. I rarely give you rhymes. It's the, the purpose so nice that Paul states it twice. That's your only rhyme. Um... <laughs> It's there in the text, clear as day, verses 12 and 14. And he does it for, to the praise of his glory. You see, these, these early Christians whom Paul is writing to, these early Christians understood that uh, the reason that God has placed them on earth, the reason that they existed was to worship God to give glory to God, to give praise to God, and that's absolutely true true for us today. Uh, And that's very different than our cultural anthem uh, of our day, me, me, me. See, the larger passage that we've been looking at here for three weeks now uh, has proven over and over and over again that, that God does love us deeply, that God has loved us eternally, that God has loved us sacrificially. And yet, here we see that his love for us is part of a bigger picture, a bigger purpose, purpose, and that is for the praise of his glory. When we, when we really grasp that, um, that our lives are about the glory of God, that it is just incredibly freeing, incredibly freeing, because this frees us from self-promotion on social media, and it frees us from, from seeking to build our own little kingdoms constructed of other people's opinions about us. And you know, it, it leads us to turn from ourselves to be others-oriented in our friendships uh, and in our service to others and, and to do it all for the glory of God's name, which means you don't care if you get credit anymore. All right, so let's, let's bring this to a close. I know, we got tacos before too long. Um, so what God is, is teaching us here is that, that all of life is about doxology. Do you know what that word... Doxology means it's not one we throw around during the week very often. It's uh, it is in your bulletin every week. Um, you know, grab your bulletin, open up to the back flap, you'll see this. <clears throat> you see that big word there, doxology. Um, it's the last thing that we sing together every week as the service ends, and it's called the doxology. It's from these these two Greek words. The first one, doxa, uh, which means glory, and the second one logos or logos, depending upon who you ask, and it means a word or it means to speak. And so in short, it's a verbal expression of praise to God, doxology. And many churches sing it immediately after the offering. Uh, that's an absolutely appropriate place to do so as we are thanking God for the financial blessings that, that come from the Lord. But, but we intentionally, when we we're laying out this liturgy, even before our first, long before our first service, actually, um, we put it at this point in the service, right as the last thing, so that it is the last thing corporately on our lips as a gathering of people to worship our Lord, uh, just before we walk out these doors, so that we'll be mindful to look for ways um, that God is worthy to be praised in all of life. And when we, when we leave today, I want you to, to pay special attention to those. It's one of those things that has the danger of becoming rote, because we do it week in and week out. but hear the words, think about what we're singing here, you know, pay special attention to just the the God-centered and praise-focused words that we sing in this. These words are reminding us that every blessing that we have comes from God. And it's a call for for everyone, even the host that mentions there, the angels, uh, that we be praising God. And of course, it ends with with praise to our trying God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, the Lord has, has done great things for, for all who call upon his name and who have been sealed by the promise of his Holy Spirit. And we rest in, in his finished work. Um, let us pray.